0: Welcome to the Open House Podcast. Conversations exploring life, faith and hope with Stephen O'Doherty. On Hope 103 to Sydney and right around Australia, Open House tonight, on Remembrance Day, 100 years since the end of the First World War. I hope you had a really meaningful day. Did you spend it with family? Uh, did you remember an uncle, a friend, a father, a grandfather? Do you have someone serving in the armed forces at the moment? You know, the way we remember things, the way we remember people... Um, is critically important, uh, not just for their memory, but in fact for those who have just returned. I'm thinking of our men and women in Afghanistan, for instance, for the way that they feel about the service that they're giving. Many Australian families have family mementos of war and diary photographs, and war medals and uniforms, newspaper clippings, and so on. They're all part of the honouring, and they provide that important connection, don't they? These things are treasured pieces of family history. But how should you look after those little bits of your heritage, our national heritage? What indeed is the place of physical items in our culture? Throughout our history, it's been a common tactic to not just try to wipe out your enemy, but to try to erase their culture as well, thereby denying their very existence. We saw that in the Great Wars. We're seeing it still today in the Middle East. Professor Robin Sloggett from the University of Melbourne is the Director of the Grimwade Centre for Cultural Materials Conservation. It's the only facility of its kind in Australia and a world-recognised restoration expert. Robin, welcome back to Open House. Oh, thank you for having me. Tell me about the the First and Second World War. In particular, we're remembering the First World War tonight. Uh, What sort of cultural destruction did we see during the Great War?
1: Well, it was extraordinary, wasn't it? I mean... And there's two ways, I think, to think about that. There's the communities that were destroyed as troops, you know, marched forward and back over that terrain and completely decimated whole communities. So Mm. there was people's memories, that kind of cultures, you know, disappeared, as well as um, cultural materials. So the, the, you know, dreadful um, bombings and war over significant... um, parts of cultural heritage um, and you know in Europe where there was just so much that was really quite precious to everybody. You know Australia is sort of of um, England as the mother country so our, our whole reference points were back to Europe hmm. in the First World War. I mean that's why I think we sent so many young men to fight there um, because we held Europe so dear but at the same time we witnessed complete destruction of really significant sites and places.
0: We can't think of the Second War without thinking, of course, of the uh, the Nazi ideology and the destruction of the Jewish race was was the objective. And and what what a, what a horrendous thing it is to think back on that. We just had the anniversary of Kristallnacht, for example. Mm, but mm, so in that yeah. period, as as well as waging the war, you've got uh, you've got Hitler's people deliberately collecting all the great cultural artefacts and bringing them back.
1: Mm, extraordinary plunder, wasn't mm, it? Plunder, yeah.
0: Good
1: so, so there was, I mean, there was, there was destruction of people's identity, mm. for sure, um, but th- there was two things, I think. The plundering, the, the Germans um, certainly wanted to hold this plunder. They knew it was valuable. So things like, what they called primitive art, they would destroy. So contemporary um, artists of the time who referenced um, perhaps African sculpture, so they would destroy that kind of art. And, of course, they destroyed books. There was a big book-burning um, episode that Goebbels um, oh, yeah. stood over in the open plants And they collected all sorts of material um, and burnt that, I mean, archives as well as books. So that kind of cultural record was very much um, destroyed. But cultural material that belonged to people, um, particularly it was valuable, that the Germans kept the best records, so it's very clear who got what. That's why the restitution process has been so brilliant, because yes. they kept such great archives and kept those works in good condition. But the other aspect to that, of course, is when they were defeated, that the Allied troops went in and there was massive bombings and destruction. So in, um, where was it, Dresden? Dresden. Maybe not, but there was a a lot of – the Lutherans had collected a lot of Australian indigenous material that was held in Germany, and there was a great collection of Turingas, which are sacred items, that were completely destroyed by the Allies bombing. So, you know – Cuts a number of ways,
0: doesn't it? No, I had no idea. That's really, that's really interesting. Mm, mm. Robin Slogger is with us. She's from Melbourne University, and she's one of the world's experts in um, conservation, and uh, and this whole area of uh, of cultural preservation. I suppose you've talked about the restitution process, Robin, and and how mm. easy it was. But we th- there's a lot of stuff that was never returned, um, but tragically for some families, of course, there was effectively no-one to return those goods to.
1: Mm, that's right, yeah. And, I mean, the the cultural material that we have that reflects that is the concentration camp cultural material, isn't it? So yeah. that's also, there's a whole other layer in that. We do work here with the Jewish Holocaust Centre. Oh, do you? Yeah, and that that's the centre that was... Um, put together by survivors of the Holocaust because they wanted um, to educate people about the Holocaust and mm-hmm. that it existed, you know, from the Holocaust deniers, of course, who argued that it was all a big beat-up. And what was inter- what's interesting there with the work we do is the material that has been held by families that... You know, it might be a button from a a Holocaust uniform or it might be a letter that was buried um, when the family had to flee or was taken away and they buried it and then went back and found it later. You know, so these little objects have been held by families that by themselves don't seem to be much. But you take them into a place like the Holocaust Centre and then they do oral histories with people about the objects and then you start to build this really rich history of a group of people that, you know, the Nazis tried to disappear completely. Mm. So it's just, there's always these little tangible pieces that you can put together and if you get people talking about it, then those objects start to... Live and their stories can be combined into the kind of meta narratives of what right. happened. So
0: it's interesting how um, yes, it's interesting how small objects um, can become iconic for something. So, for example, it's often the striped pajamas. It's the small things, isn't it?
1: Mm, mm. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this story that I just love recounting: is one day at the university, the archivist came to see me and said, "Oh, we've been given this envelope." with a letter, and it was from the family. This would have been late 80s, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it was a letter that had been written by their brother to his parents. And when we opened it, it had the letter, the family had kept it, and it had poppies from Flanders Fields oh, that he'd wow. pressed and dried. Oh, and, wow. of course, those poppies have become so symbolic. You know, there's the great John McCrae poem about, Fields of Flanders, mm-hmm. um, and then the story of how th- those poppies became um, part of the fundraising for returned soldiers, and you know the war memorials now has got—I forget how—two hundred and fifty thousand knitted and crocheted poppies <laughs> on the front of it.
0: Yes, so and four hundred thousand were done, and they're selling 000. them. They're dismounting <laughs> yes. that exhibition tomorrow, and um, oh, they're selling the poppies for legacy. It's extraordinary, isn't it?
1: Mm. <laughs> So anyway, so I opened it, and here's these poppies that were directly from Flanders fields. So, you know, that, and that had been held by that family for all that time. Well, what
0: became of those poppies, Robin?
1: They're, they're in the university archives, so we very carefully mounted them, took them out of the envelope, and mounted them in a protective um, environment so they wouldn't deteriorate, being kept in the dark so they don't mm-hmm. fade. Mm-hmm. But... um just the most palpable feeling to look at them.
0: Got no I can imagine what that was like when you opened that book. Mm. Robin, so that brings us to the next issue, which is that around Australia there are many, many families who have these small, perhaps, but absolutely significant little treasures. What should they be doing with those?
1: Well, the first thing is to identify them. So <laughs> document them. You know, if you've got something that... Um, Relates to, I'm thinking for older people, maybe your father or your uncle or your grandfather's ob- object that they brought back or grandmother or great aunt, you know, too. I mean, if you remember the story, then write that down mm. so that when that object gets passed to the next generation, the story can go with it. I think that's absolutely critical mm. because objects by themselves become disassociated and the reason that they've been held in families is because they've had a story that meant something to somebody. So if you lose the story you lose so much of the value of that object. Mm. So that's that's part of the conservation of it, that's the intangible part. But then the tangible part is to make sure that it's not under, you know, if it's a letter it's not under there where the silverfish will get it or if it's a uniform that it's you know, kept away from moths and, you know, those basic first first aid kind of mm-hmm. um, housekeeping aspects, which everybody knows. It's hardly rocket science. You don't need to be a conservator to understand <laughs> that kind of thing. No. <laughs> but it's amazing how many things come to conservation because people didn't think about the moths in the cupboard or the silverfish under the bed or...
0: Okay, I get that. But then, so then when... Um is there a time when it's right to hand that over? or um, And indeed, are museums open to that? Like, pe- people often say, we've got this special thing that belonged to Uncle Harry or whatever, and the museum um, might say, well, we've actually got a lot of those buttons from the tunics of soldiers.
1: Yeah, see, so I have a very particular take on this, and it yeah. is that I think um, these things mean something to families and people. They relate to people. So to take them into an institution where they might be able to be looked after much more effectively, but they become detached from what they are, mm. why they're there. Um, there was a debate last year, I think, where some of the colours, the regimental colours, there was a debate about whether they should be handed over to the RSL because there was very few people from that regiment alive anymore. hmm Um, and it was, you know, the local regiments. So those regiments were formed in districts and marched through the district and people came from the districts. And that's kind of an interesting debate because now the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of of those people who are part of that regiment have the colours and march with the colours. If they go to the RSL, then do you start to break down all of that... Tradition and ongoing intergenerational take up of those. Well,
0: that traditions. is interesting. What you're saying is then that the rich history belongs to a family and should stay in a family.
1: I I think yes, I think <laughs> that's most appropriate actually, because I, I think um, there's a whole kind of philosophy there of people going off to war, and they went off to war because they were defending home. You see that everywhere, you know. So even with our our current Service men and women yeah. you know they 're going because they 've got a, a strong belief that they 're committing to their country, yeah. not that they 're part of some foreign policy you know that, that they need right. to, they need to adhere to, but that they 're providing a service to their country, and that 's a very personal thing and I think when you start to detach that it 's a national story for sure, but when you detach it from people then I, I think it leads to all sorts of Issues about how we honour that history,
0: actually. You'll be interested to know that uh, we were speaking with Brendan Nelson for this programme.
1: Oh, well, he's doing well with the um, War Memorial at the moment.
0: Well, they're doing an extraordinary job, Robin. But you know what? He said after. Firstly, why was he interested in all of this stuff? When he was a GP in Tasmania, uh, he would go into houses, and every house had the same picture of the relative. That he had in his house, where his he had some relatives who served. It was the same picture, so that classic uh, AIF picture, you know, mm, or whatever mm. force it was, all looking out. And he started to realise the impact on a generation and the recurring impact on families of mm, the service, just mm. by the the number of different things that were all the same but personal, you know. And secondly, he said that he he's come to understand that um, the most important Part of remembering, or well, the most important reason, all, all of this, this commemoration, he says, just uh, wraps up into the single word love. It's about love.
1: Mm, it's interesting, <laughs> isn't it? It's wonderful. I think that's also why the our Viet, um, um, return yep. service men and women have had such problems, really, because yep. there hasn't been this public acknowledgement of the service. And I think, you know, the current debates around what's happening with um, people coming back from Afghanistan or, you know, Middle East service mm. at the moment, and the other thing of th- relating to that is that where are their photographs and where are their letters? Well, they're in digital form. So <sighs> <Okay. laughs> is that history just going to disappear? Because families will keep it for a while in digital form, but then the software package changes and they forget to upgrade or they've got a different kind of computer or and suddenly it's not accessible to them. So I think it's also part part of a kind of post-trauma reconstruction to have it there, to acknowledge it, to be able to sit with it and, you know, identify it and for it to become part of a social fabric. And I do think it's interesting with our current returned servicemen and women that that tangible cultural material framework is very tenuous and i, th- I think it feeds into the, the current kind of issues we've got with some um,
0: post-traumatic stress actually what a wonderful insight well robin it's always good speaking with you i want to thank you so much for what you do and thank you for speaking <laughs> us again <laughs> on Steve, Open great House. Yeah.
1: great funny I, I love chatting to you it's fabulous
0: thank you robin robin from Melbourne University and the Grimwade Centre for Conservation, a world expert in conservation. Can you imagine being the person who found that? Can you imagine finding those poppies in, in, the, uh, in the letter that was opened? Poppies from Flanders Field itself. And you know that John McRae poem? I hope you do. In Flanders Fields, the poppies blow between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place... And in the sky, the larks still bravely singing, fly scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders fields. Well, yes, indeed, you can Google the rest of that. It's a beautiful poem. Discover more Open House podcasts at OpenHouseCommunity dot com dot